Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, everybody. Good to have you once again. I'm Mike, alongside Mark Sweeney. It's great that you're able to subscribe to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. And Mark, our guest today has seen baseball's best from point-blank range. He has worked the playoffs, World Series, called Perfect Games, and Imperfect Ones. And Mark, he's a guy you got to know when you played. Uh, this is special for Major League Beginnings. It's not only the players, it's the people surrounding and encompassing the game of baseball. But if you think of it, Mike, 23 perfect games in the history of baseball. And Ted Barrett has been part of three of them, two behind the plate. Ted, you're a reverend, doctor, crew chief, more than 20 years as a Major League umpire. A lot of big moments. You've had playoff series, World Series, All-Star games, three no-hitters, two of which were perfect games you were behind the plate for. So trying to find your most memorable game is pretty tough. But we decided to run with your first perfect game that you were behind the plate for, the David Cohn game uh, in July of 1999. Take us back to that moment, what you experienced, what you remember, and the pressure that goes along with being behind the plate for a game like that. Yeah, that, that was a special moment. And, uh, you know, it's funny, it seems like yesterday, and here we are so many years later, but uh, I remember vividly, it's just one of those steamy, hot uh, New York days um, with an afternoon game. And, you know, the air is just so thick, like it could rain at any minute. And, uh, you know, Cone comes out there and, and uh, he's facing the Expos, who I found out later nobody had ever faced him before in the lineup. So it's kind of a recipe for uh, – uh, for a well, uh, a, a good outcome for him. And um, it was the first interleague uh, perfect game. So the game starts out and, and he's throwing it. He's got his slider working. The guys are uh, swinging and um, we have a rain delay. End of the third inning. It comes down. Jim Evans is the crew chief. He pulls him off the field. They put the tarp on. And I remember joking. I said, that's too bad. He had a perfect game going uh, because I didn't think he was going to come back out. But he did. And um, the game starts again, and, and the game rolls along, and um, there's some great plays made. Joe Girardi's catching. He's, uh, we're kind of looking at each other, but neither of us wants to say anything. Um, and before the game, you know, Yogi Berra had, had been battling with Steinbrenner uh, throughout uh, the past few years. So it was his first day back at Yankee Stadium, and he actually caught the first pitch um, that, that was uh, thrown out by uh, – the guy who threw the perfect game in the World Series, Don Larson, threw out the first pitch. And uh, so it's like this movie script. Um, you couldn't have written up any better. Uh, Larson throwing out the pitch, Yogi catching it. I think it was Joe Torrey's birthday. Um, and we roll along. We get into the sixth, the seventh, the eighth. Uh, and you just feel Yankee Stadium, the tension building. And, um, you know, of course, everybody's sitting a mile apart from from the pitcher in the dugout. Um, Chuck Knobloch had, he had some trouble throwing to first base that year. Um, I think they were putting up sandbags over there in the, <laughs> in the first base dugout. And he goes, he goes up to middle, backhands a ball and turns and just fires a complete strike uh, to nip somebody. Um, I remember O'Neill making a sliding catch. Uh, Ricky Lede had a ball hit him. Um, he's coming in on a fly ball easy play well it hits him on the wrist I think and he bobbles it <laughs> and then he ends up catching it and uh, you know there's just so many things that go into a perfect game where everybody's making the making the plays 
And um, I could see it in Cone's eyes, you know, uh, how bad he wanted it. Uh, and, and so from an umpire, you're sitting back there trying not to, to get caught up in the moment because a ball's got to be a ball and a strike's got to be a strike. And so the pressure is tremendous because if you miss a strike and then somebody gets a base hit, well, the umpire cost him a perfect game. On the other hand, if you go off the plate and, and you know, call a pitch, uh, a 3-0 pitch, a, uh, a strike that should have been a ball, well, you, you helped him get his perfect game. So uh, it's really – it's a no-win situation. So just back there trying to tell yourself, uh, call a ball a ball and a strike a strike and just concentrate and let it play out. And, um, you know, when that uh, – the last batter popped it up and, and Brocious is under it to make the catch and, uh, you know, it just seemed like it hung in the air forever. And then the ball comes down in his glove and, and uh, it was pretty cool to see uh, the, the joy on Cone's face as he dropped to his knees and um you know these are things that uh, i know when i retire i've talked to tim mcclellan the other day and and um you know you, you sit back and then you reflect on it after you retire but these are one of those this is one of those moments that i, I kind of reflect on now and um it was a pretty special moment um it was a, for us we had to travel after the game to head to boston and so we really didn't get to hang out in the locker room and and celebrate it was pack up the trunks and move on to the next series but uh yeah, it's, 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 it's something I'll always remember. Teddy, interesting that there, there's aspects to that game that are, are pretty amazing. First off, when you think of perfect games, there's been 23 in the history of Major League Baseball. So you understand you're in that moment. But the other particulars are uh, David Cohn, 88 pitches. It was a very fast game because of that. 21 called strikes. Uh, and the reason why I say that is that you made a good point. You have to be in that locked-in mode concentration because we know about David Cohn's slider. And for anyone that realizes that's a swing and miss pitch, those guys are going to start swinging early in the count and are going to try to do that. The concentration level for me is the aspect that is so important. Speak to that, if you could, of its pitch by pitch and how do you lock into those moments? Yeah. And that's why, you know, working home plate in no matter what level you're at, but then uh, it intensifies at the major league level. You have to concentrate so hard because um, you literally can't take one pitch off. Um, you know, you have to be, you know, 21 called strikes, uh, which is pretty amazing that that's a low number for us, but um, also, you know, you're concentrating, on the pitch because, um, you know, you don't know if he's going to swing. You don't know if, uh, what's going to happen. The ball's going to be put in place. So every pitch you're just locking in. Um, and so a lot of times people will say, what's, what's your favorite position to work? And I think every umpire would say home plate, but, uh, it's so it's really grueling. Um, you walk off the field and you literally have a headache because you've been concentrating so hard for three, four, five hours, however long the game goes. Um, and then it gets intensified postseason World Series where everybody's hanging on every pitch. Um, so you literally, I think what sets apart a, a, an excellent major league umpire um, from maybe someone that's not at the highest level, it's concentration. And um, I think uh, every guy you see back there uh, when you watch TV in the big leagues, we've done it so much. As you, as you remember, when we were both you guys were coming up through the minor leagues, in A ball and rookie ball, you're working two man, and you don't get to to uh, three man to get to double A and triple A. But it's important for you to work the plate every other day. 
So in a 140-game minor league season, you're working to play 70 times, uh, which is hard to believe we did that. Um, but it, I'm glad we worked four-man in the big leagues because uh, that plate job comes around every fourth day. And we enjoy it. We like getting back there. But mentally, you are just fried when it's over. Ted, you think of uh, aspects that we've heard. When you have a moment like that, a perfect game especially, a no-hitter, all of these magical moments, the Hall of Fame – calls the player and asks them for memorabilia to, to have in the Hall of Fame to showcase that game. But we never hear it from the umpire's perspective. Did they ask you for some memorabilia that you had during that game? You know, I, I, don't, I don't think they did, um, as I remember. But uh, they did ask me after the World Series, the, uh, the 18-inning game we had in the World Series, I gave them my indicator, the, the uh, ball and strike mm-hmm. indicator we have. And so they, and then they actually sent a nice letter um, thanking me. So it's really cool. Uh, I could tell my grandkids I'm in the Hall of Fame. Uh, at least my indicator is. Uh, but I, I remember uh, with Matt Kane's perfect game, I signed one of the plate shoes that I wore, and um, I gave it to uh, to Sean there in New York at Foley's. Um, it's a great place. Uh, you know, a lot of baseball people stop into it. There's a lot of cool memorabilia. So one of my shoes is in there from a perfect game. Yeah, I've heard about those places after the game. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Ted, let us get back to what we believe is the core of our podcast, and that is Major League Beginnings. And umpires do share some similarities with players in that you can get called up and sent back down before you get a chance to establish yourself at the big league level. I don't think a lot of people realize how difficult it is to become a big league umpire. About 300 or so people go to umpiring school every year. Maybe a couple dozen get a minor league opportunity. At the big league level, there are fewer of you than there are U.S. senators, fewer than 100 major league umpires. Take us back to the moment you first got the call. Not your first permanent role as a big league umpire, but when you first got even a chance to get that cup of coffee at the big league level. What do you remember? Who told you, and who did you tell? Again, it's one of those things that I'll never forget. And, and you're right, there's 76 major league umpires. Uh, when, when I was coming up, before the teams expanded and they expanded the staff and before replay, I think there was only uh, 60 major league umpires as I came up, maybe 64 at that time. Um, so, and, and, you know, as umpires, we stay until we die or retire. So there's not many jobs that open up every year. So, um Back in, uh, I was promoted to Triple A from the Texas League in 1993, about halfway through the season. So I finished out the year in the Pacific Coast League. And uh, previous to that, my wife, uh, I have uh, three kids, but at the time we had two, a son and a daughter. And uh, we decided to move from Northern California, where my wife's from, to Phoenix. And one of the reasons was be home for spring training, instructional league, fall league, but also Phoenix was in the PCL uh, before the Diamondbacks had a team, as you guys remember. But in Tucson, also had a team, and we could drive to Las Vegas. So anyway, uh, we were in Tucson, and it was uh, the end of May in 1994. Um, and I had no idea that I even had a possibility of getting called up that year. So this kind of came out of the blue. Um, I come home from the ball game in Tucson. My wife had stayed home with our young children, or stayed in the hotel with our young children, didn't go to the ball game. And she said, you got a message from Phil Jansen. Um, 
And uh, she seemed kind of excited thinking, hey, maybe this is a call you're going to go to the big leagues. But the funny thing is we used to call each other bef before cell phones. We would call and leave messages uh, for other guys like uh, Marty Springstead, who's an American League supervisor, and, and Ed Vargo was a National League supervisor. So we'd say, hey, uh, with the hotel operator, you know, you'd get back, remember the red lights blinking, and the, the operator would say, uh, you're supposed to call Marty Springstead, and they'd leave a number. And it was just a deke trying to get a guy's, uh, you know, get his emotions up or kind of cruel, really, you think about it, but that's the way we were. So when I had this message, Phil Jansen, and here's a number you're to call him, I thought, okay, now who's messing with me? Uh, so I called, and, and Phil answered, and he said, hey, I, I need you to go to Texas. Um, and, you know, it just, just came out of the blue. He said, uh, so it was a, a Wednesday night after the game. He said, you got to be there for the Friday game, uh, work tomorrow night in Tucson, and then fly out Friday morning. And uh, so that's what I did after uh, the game in Tucson on Thursday. We drove home. Um, I got up Friday morning, went to the Phoenix airport. And I remember I had to carry my, my big trunk. One of the great things about going to the big leagues is getting your trunk shipped with all your equipment from one park to another. And then it magically uh, arrives at the next city and it's unpacked and everything. It's not the way it is in the minor leagues, as you guys both know. Uh, so I'm hauling my big trunk. And I remember uh, getting to the, the airline desk and the lady asked, uh, she said, what's that big trunk for? I said, well, I'm an umpire. She said, are you in the major leagues? I remember it dawned on me. I said, well, I will be tonight. <laughs> so I get on the plane. I'm flying to Dallas. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, um, this can't be real. I'm going to get there. And they're going to say, oh, we, we called the wrong guy. We meant to call Barnett. Sorry. You can go back. <laughs> so I get there and um, I get to the hotel. And it's about 11 o'clock. The game's that night at 7. And um, – Jim Evans is the crew chief. Now I had met Jim, but just recently uh, in spring training and passing uh, had never worked with him. And uh, so I called him and I said, uh, Hey Jim, I'm here at the hotel. Can I get together and talk? Now I got to say that I had never worked the four man system. We were three men in AAA, and even I had worked the fall league that year. And that was three men. We, we did a little four man in the playoffs, but, Certainly. So now I've got this, this excitement of going to the big leagues has turned into kind of terror because <laughs> I'm about to walk on the field and not know what I'm doing. So I'm really going to get exposed here as, as they called the wrong guy. Um, so I wanted to talk with Jim and, and get a little quick tutorial. Uh, but Jim said, uh, he said, no, my daughter's here. His daughter was a teenager at the time. He said, uh, we're going over to six flags and um, I'll call you later. So I hung up the phone I didn't have the number of the other guys, didn't know what room they were in or even who was there. So about three o'clock, Jim calls me back. He said, hey, uh, my daughter and I are out by the pool if you want to come out and say hi. So I came out and, and I said, hey, Jim, you remember me? He said, yeah. And he said, well, what are you doing here? Are you passing through? He, he thought I was in the Texas League. I said, I'm working with you tonight. He said, oh, okay. I had no idea. Um, Larry McCoy had uh, um, gotten injured, hit with a foul tip, broke his collarbone. and um, he, he, Jim hadn't even got the news yet, so he didn't even know I was coming. Anyway, we get into the ballpark, and um, I just was amazed as I walked in the locker room, the spread there and the food and the candy. It's why all umpires, we all need to lose weight because the way they feed us in the big leagues is great. <laughs> we, weren't get, we weren't getting that in the minor leagues. Um, and I remember uh, 
walking out on the field and the lineup card exchange. And, and it was the first year of the Rangers new ballpark, which is funny. Now they have a new park. I guess we're getting old. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, that's an old stadium. Uh, so, and I just remember the game starting and Roger Clemens is pitching and um, it rains and we go in the locker room with this rain and it was this Texas rain that, you know, uh, just comes down and, in buckets and so I thought oh well, we're out of here because in the minor leagues we'd never well of course we know that field drains like 10 inches in an hour so before we know it, we're back out there playing uh the lights went out which is crazy it's only happened I think three times in my major league career and here's my first night uh so we're delayed again and um I remember uh, being in the locker room and uh, the stadium manager came in and said hey we're ready to go again um, and we were watching the NHL playoffs, and there was a couple minutes left in the period. <laughs> and the crew chief, Jim Evans, says, we'll be out in a couple minutes after <laughs> the period. <laughs> so, I, you know, the whole time I'm thinking, wow, you can do that here? <laughs> we couldn't do that in the minor leagues. Uh, so, anyway, that was um, – the game's over, and, and I can't even remember who won. And, and uh, I've gone back into the box scores to look to see who the players were because uh, that memory fades. So, it was, that was a Friday – and then Saturday, I worked second base. Sunday, I worked first base. And I got called by Mar Marty Springstead, the uh, director of the American League Umpires. And he said, uh, hey, you're going to stay with this crew. You're going to go to New York. And um, I said, okay, you sure? He said, yeah. So we got on the plane Sunday after the game. Of course, I'm flying first class now, which I've never done. Uh, we land in New York. And Monday, here we are Monday, Memorial Day, uh, 1994. And I'm working home plate for my first uh, major league home plate game and um i remember jim abbott was pitching um mike stanley was catching uh, on the other side is the white Sox and uh, scott sanderson who we just lost last year um you know had this curveball that i had never seen before uh ron karkovice catching um so really the the that week i had my first major league game and then my first major league plate job uh, it was quite a week and again i kept waiting for uh, them to call and say okay you can go back now but uh, I stayed up that whole season until the strike hit. So 1994 was just a magical year. Uh, after the players went on strike, I went back to AAA, uh, kind of back to reality. Uh, but that began then my um, career is filling in for vacations and injuries until I got hired full time. So uh, sorry to ramble, but that's a, those were great memories for me. And thanks for asking. Well, Teddy, uh, it's interesting because it is ha it has a lot to do with the grind for every individual, whether you're a player, umpire. But I would really love, because you touched on it, you had to go back to the minor leagues in the strike in 1994. You went back to AAA. Let's go through that journey uh, of, of what it really takes as an umpire because it's fascinating to me what it, what it takes to get to that big league level, to get to that moment. Yeah, there's something a lot of fans I don't think realize because, you know, you follow the players and you might see a phenom uh, get drafted and a couple years later he's in the major leagues. You know, with us, uh, we've got to hit every level of the minor league. So, um, you know, like Mike said, there's about 300 guys go and, and, and maybe 30 to 50 get in that year. Well, when, when they get in the minor leagues, they're right at the bottom level. They're in the Arizona League, Gulf Coast League. If they're lucky, the next year they'll go up to the to the short season, Northwest League, um, New York Penn League. After that, they'll go to A ball, but like an, a mid A, like the Midwest League, South Atlantic League. Uh, then they'll go to Long A, like the Cal League, Florida State League. So 
unlike the players, we can't skip a level. We've got to hit every level. So you see a guy's got four years already invested in the minor leagues. He's not even out of A ball. Now he'll go to one of the double A leagues and he'll be there two to three years. Then uh, if he's lucky, he'll get promoted to triple A where the big league supervisors will now start looking at him, um, hoping to get the Arizona fall league uh, where he can get a little more intense supervision. Um, so as you can see, He's looking at eight, nine, ten years before he even gets called up to the major leagues now. And then he's going to fill in until one of us dies or retires. And uh, so this could be a 14, 15-year journey from going to umpire school to getting a job in the major leagues. Uh, certainly um, at least about 10 years. So when you see a guy with a major league uniform on the field, even if he's not a full-time major league umpire, he's got at least 10 years invested in this and 10 years of calling minor league baseball. Um, and this is, you know, a lot of times people will say, and I understand where they're coming from. They say, hey, the players are accountable. Managers are accountable. If they don't win, they're fired. Players, if they don't play well, they're sent down. But what they have to understand is uh, the reason umpires aren't sent down is that, in theory, by the time they've invested their 15 years into the minor leagues to get hired into the big leagues, uh, they're the best of the best already. And um, so, you know, it's, uh, again, we've got guys that are working uh, 67, 68 years old. I think Bruce Fremming made it to 70, uh, you know, which you don't see on the player side so much. So there's just not a whole lot of turnover, but I think it makes the competition great. Um, I think it makes us rise up. And, and I'll, I'll just say this, the young guys with the training they have, um, the, the, the profession of umpiring is just getting better. I feel like, we were better than our predecessors, and these guys are going to be far better than us. Teddy, how long did it take you to get up there? So actually, in 1994, it was actually my sixth year, um, which w was really, uh, you know, kind of skyrocketing um, through the system. Uh, but from there, I filled in until I was hired full-time in 1999. So I think that was – I went to umpire school in 1989, so I think it was my 11th season – when I got hired full-time, and that would be considered uh, pretty fast, especially uh, by today's standards. So, um, yeah, guys don't just uh, go to umpire school and a few year later, years later they're in the big leagues. It's, um, it's a long journey, and it's a grind. And then now you're starting your, uh, your, you know, your 25, 30-year major league career from there. So you can see that this is something that uh, we're really heavily invested in. You know, Ted, as you pointed out there, you share a lot of similarities with the players. You know, you're going through the minor leagues. You got all that travel, lousy accommodations, lousy pay, trying to earn your shot. Uh, and like a lot of players, you got to have some off-season work sometimes to supplement things. I'm looking at your resume. I, I don't know that there's anybody in baseball, player, executive, umpire, you, you name it, who is a, an umpire, a reverend, and a boxer. <laughs> and, and I find it fascinating, and I bring it up because, like I said, you have to supplement your income. Everybody does it certain ways. A lot of guys take a less physical approach in the offseason. <laughs> you decided you're going to start trading blows with people like uh, Evander uh, Holyfield, Mike Tyson, George Foreman uh, as a sparring partner. What was the genesis of that, and, and why would you subject yourself to that? Well, yeah, it's, I'm paying the price now. So, uh, 
but um, I, you know, I had a pre pretty decent amateur career, and I, you know, I just grew up playing all sports. My dad exposed me to all sports: football, basketball, baseball, try it all, boxing, hockey, everything. And um, you know, it, which is I think was uh, a great thing that he did. And I really boxing, I, I liked it. Uh, I love football. I love basketball, baseball. Boxing was one of those things that I seemed to be pretty good at. Um, but uh, as I got into the minor leagues. Um, you know, I wanted to stop boxing and, and become an umpire, but the gyms that I was going to, uh, heavyweights are, are rare, especially, uh, heavyweight sparring partners, guys willing to get in with people And Phoenix at the time when I moved here was, was, uh, kind of a hotbed of guys would come out here and stay and train before they fought in Las Vegas. And, uh, so I always had work. And, uh, when I was, uh, in a ball and, uh, not making any money, <laughs> and had a young family, um, I just couldn't turn down the opportunity to make some money. And uh, actually, and I felt like I was staying in shape too for, for baseball. Uh, so, you know, eventually it came to a point, I told my wife I'd stop sparring when I was 40. Um, and then when I turned 40, uh, there was a couple guys that, uh, that called needing work. Um, so I even did it a little bit when I was in the big leagues, which, um, in retrospect, wasn't really wise. Uh, <laughs> But, um, yeah, now, now that I'm into my 50s, uh, I no longer get in there swap punches. I, I, I've kind of gone toward the referee side. Uh, it's a little bit safer, um, although you're, you're kind of in the middle of the action. But uh, boxing is a great sport. I love it. Um, I think that might be my retirement gig, refing boxing. Uh, but, yeah, it's uh, in the minor leagues. It's, it's a lot of times it's anything for a buck anything you can do. And so I felt like uh, I made some great friends and, and met some good people and uh, got out of there relatively unscathed. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not the, I'm, I'm not the most handsome guy in the world anyway. I've, uh, so I wasn't really worried about that, but uh, I've got most of my faculties in place. Ted, Ted I'll tell you this, and that's, we, we as players do our research too. And when you came into the league, I had you in the minor leagues too, but came into the league. We knew that. So I didn't even peek back. I didn't want to, I didn't want to peek back because you had that death <laughs> stare in you. I'll transition this, which I think is pretty important because as an umpire, you have to control the environment. And it, that brings us to ejections. And is there anything that comes to mind about ejections and handling tougher situations in your role? Yeah, you know, it's uh you can learn how to umpire, you know, calling balls and strikes, getting positions, uh, making, making the right call. Um, one of the harder things to learn is how to uh, manage personalities and how to uh, have ejections. And, you know, for me, it's really, I tell young guys, you know, you, you give respect, you get respect. So I try to treat the players the managers and coaches with respect, but I expect to be treated with respect also. And uh, so, it, you know, we've all got that thing where we draw our line. You know, you, you've kind of, uh, you give your warnings and um, you have to follow through and eject. I, I, I equate it to disciplining children. You know, now I've got grandkids running around. I watch my kids discipline children. And, and not to say the players are children. That's not what I mean. Uh, even though they can act childish at times, we all can. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you just let a, a kid run around and uh, do whatever he wants, uh, he's, he's going to cause some trouble. So there's some times, right, you have to tell a kid, don't do that, don't do that. And if he continues to, you're going to have to discipline him. So on the field, you know, when, when guys misbehave, I feel like uh, it's my job as almost like in a parental role 
don't do that. Don't act like that. Um, and if you continue to do that, you're going to be ejected. But, um, you know, one thing replay has done, um, I'll, there's great advantages to it. You know, um, Jimmy Joyce is one of my best friends. He's living with a, you know, a call that'll, you know, uh, he's associated with a missed call talking about perfect games earlier, um, where replay could have just made that a footnote. Uh, Don Degger in the 85 world series had a missed call where replay could have, uh, you know, um, kind of taken him off the hook. We never want to have a play named after us, like the Denkinger play and the Joyce play. But my point is, uh, replay has taken away a lot of arguments. Um, so you now there's just uh, play on the bases. You don't, uh, you know, Mark. You used to. You were always very respectful with umpires. We um, we always appreciated that. Uh, but you know, you you might think you beat out a base hit, and the umpire calls you out, and you're going to react to it. Uh, so how do we handle that? Um, now with replay, you just the guy looks in the dugout and points in there for a review, which always makes me laugh because I yeah. think they're not looking at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're saying, "Look at it! Look at it!" And then uh, you know we'll we'll go to the headsets and and uh, be ruled one way or the other. But um, yeah, arguments and ejections are a skill that uh, you have to learn, and um, you know that's something we always talk about and develop. We still got balls and strikes. Uh, we're always going to have that, right? Cats and dogs. Uh, arguing with um, each other. Um, So how do you handle the personalities? And, um, you know, my thing is I always, once a guy reacts, I try to keep him in the game uh, because that's what the fans came to see. But if he crosses that line uh, where we have to take action, then we're not afraid to do that either. So, um, yeah, I I guess one of of my most famous ejections was uh, Bobby Cox was ejected to set the record um, you know, it's funny because I feel like the fans felt like they were cheated because, first of all, we went into Atlanta and they said, hey, Bobby only needs one more ejection for the record. Uh, came back a couple months later. I thought surely that record would have been broken by now <laughs> and surpassed, but it hadn't. So that night, uh, you know, Bobby's yelling about balls and strikes from the dugout. I warn him. He's ejected. It happened between innings. So uh, the broadcast is away on a commercial and Bobby came out and it was actually, you know, pretty calm. Uh, he stated his case and, and then he left without uh, much fanfare, no hat throwing, no dirt kicking. So I think the fans were like, what happened? We missed it. Um, it was all so calm, but um, you know, that's uh, and, and there's other times when managers come out and they feel like they need to argue and stick up for their team. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, it, it was a situation with um, uh, the manager for the Dodgers, um, <laughs> Jim Tracy. Thank God I remembered his name. Uh, he came out, wonderful guy. I had a, two plays at the plate. Uh, Paul Duca was catching. He thought I've missed them both. And, you know, Jim comes out and he says, where well, I'm sitting in the dugout with my angle, I can see you got both those plays right. But my catcher's really mad right now, and I'm going to get thrown out before he does. <laughs> And I said, okay, Jim, uh, he says, I'm going to throw my hat down. You'll eject me. I said, I can do that. So he throws his hat down. I eject him. He yells and screams a little bit. He tells me, hey, have a good night. But when he went to leave, he uh, went to kick the chalk line to kick some chalk up at me. Well, he dug his toe into the turf, and he hurt it pretty bad. And uh, he came out to the he, – he hobbled out to the home plate the next day with the lineup cards. He said, well, that's what I get for trying to kick at you. Uh, I broke my toe, I think. So, uh, you know, those are, those are the funny stories that I remember, um, you know, people think 
that they're yelling and screaming and giving you the business and yet they're just uh, sticking up for their team and, and being nice about it. Ah, uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, don't feel bad about the Bobby Cox one because he ended up with 158 in the regular season, 161 total. And wow. We know the respect that Bobby Cox had. But I'll, I'll, you mentioned Jim Joyce, and I want to circle back to that situation because it's called the imperfect game. Uh, mm. it, it was Armando uh, Galarraga, which was an interesting game and an interesting aspect because – it was, if you go back to replay, and replay was not in baseball at that point. And I think that's a, an important factor in this story. But it, it really would have been the last, if it was replay, it would have been the last out. And that's why a lot of people have a tough time with that. Now, in a, a former player, the respect that Jim Joyce had throughout the game of baseball was reeling for me, even watching that moment. And the next day, how he handled every situation and, and what he did. I'd love to get your perspective on what Jim Joyce uh, and how he handled that situation because it was a very difficult situation uh, in the game of baseball. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Jim handled it with such class, which you'd expect. And, and like you said, Mark, you know how well respected he was and still is in the game. Um, and, so for that to happen, listen, when we miss a call, nobody feels worse than we do. And so when Jim walked in there and saw the replay, because you don't know on the field, you know, you, you think you got it right. Um, he, have a, he has a reaction like that. You know, he thinks, well, yeah, it's a perfect game. And, and of course, I'm going to have that reaction. But he didn't know he missed it until he got into the locker room and saw it with his own two eyes. And from there, you know, it, it's important, I think, as an umpire to be honest with yourself. So he looked at it and he said, I missed it. And I'm sure his heart just sunk and he felt terrible. Uh, and then from there, you know, remorseful, uh, you know, the magnitude of that is I just cost someone a perfect game. And that's really hard to live with. That's really hard to accept. So him to be humble and admit that and then to apologize. But the other half of the equation is how classy Armando Galarraga was in the Detroit Tigers organization. Uh, you know, there was, there was grace and, and uh, forgiveness there. Um, you know, they saw a man who felt terrible about a mistake he made, and uh, they forgave him. Um, and just it was a great moment in baseball the next day as Galarraga brings out the lineup cards. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, that was genuine emotion. You see Jim uh, move to tears, uh, you know, which is something that, uh, you know, doesn't happen easily. So it was genuine. It was heartfelt. And, uh, you know, one thing we forget sometimes in the heat of battle is we're a baseball family. You know, we're all in it together, right? We're, and it, that's something that reminds us with this, uh, with this COVID is we're, we're all just uh, waiting to get back out and start playing again. Um, and I think that was a pretty good example of it. But I think uh, even as much respect Jim attained through that, I think he'd rather have go to the headphones, have New York overrule him, and uh, the perfect game would have been intact, and uh, he would have just been a footnote in the box score instead of instead of a national story. You know, Jim has uh, clearly done everything he can to to ingratiate himself and not that he needed to really back to the players and, and of course to the fans and, and clearly within your fraternity, but it really brings to light, I think a very uh, interesting issue. And that is that of stress and stress management. I, I think I read uh, in your um, 
theology doctoral thesis. You said to umpire, you got to start out perfect and then you've got to get better from there. So I'm thinking of, of Jim Joyce and I'm thinking about the pressure and the scrutiny and the competition and the politics and the on and on and the backstabbing nature of certain careers. How is it that you personally manage all that in addition to managing a crew of umpires undergoing similar circumstances? Mm, yeah, that, and, and that is something near and dear to my heart is, uh, you know, I, I feel as I walk on the field with, with us, with the players, with the managers, with the front office people, the pressure to deliver, the pressure to be excellent on a nightly basis over a, a grind of 162 game season, it, it's maddening. Um, and, uh, you know, I just feel like I watch teams play and, uh, you know, I can see guys, you know, as Mark, you know, when we get dressed, take a shower, walk out of the ballpark, I see the players' faces when they lose. I mean, it's just like their dog died. Um, and, uh, you know, and then when you win, it's not like, hey, this is great. Let's enjoy it. Let's have fun. It's I got to go get some rest because we got a day game tomorrow. And so there's really not time to enjoy the wins. Uh, and so it's, it's a hard thing. And with us as umpires, you know, we walk off the field, have a great game, but it's like, doggone it, I think I missed that pitch in the fourth. Um, and so I, I try to talk to my crew about trying to celebrate um, a job well done and, um, you know, not, not beating ourselves up too hard on the mistakes. Let's learn from them and move on. And so, uh, but we just wear it. Like I said, we feel so terrible when there's a missed call. Um, you know, when, when we put on the headphones and the guy in New York says, uh, we're going to overturn this call, I mean, your heart sinks. The great thing is we're getting it right with replay, but the bad thing is you, you, know, you, you feel like you just failed and, uh, and you feel terrible. So we have to find ways to um, keep each other up as a crew chief. Uh, in my role, I feel like, uh, you know, someone that's, that's trying to teach young umpires how to navigate this, uh, try to study as much as I can on, on uh, performance, uh, the mental performance, the physical performance of the job. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult job, and nobody knows what it's like unless you've done it and been through it. So I feel like it's our job as older guys to shepherd and mentor these young guys into handling the stress. And... As you guys can remember in the, you know, just in, in our career in the, in the 90s, not every game was on TV. You know, you'd go in some ballparks and it was just a radio game or, and now, uh, I mean, every game is in front of, uh, you know, multiple cameras. Um, there's literally people sitting in New York watching you work uh, to help you with replay, but also it's, um, you know, everything, there's no mistake uh, can be made that doesn't get, get found um so yeah you're you're right mike it's it's very difficult it's um it's tough to uh to navigate and keep your sanity uh so we're just all trying to do that and, and help each other out teddy that's fascinating um w when you have longevity in the game that you have moments and, and there's all-star games there's another perfect game for you with matt kane in, in 2012 which actually in that year, there were three of them. You were involved with two of them, Philip Umber up in, in uh, Seattle. You, ha you had the third base. So you're involved with magical games, and you take yourself into the career, but you're stacking those up as your career goes along. 
I want to fast forward. You had a World Series game with Colorado and, and Red Sox, but I want to fast forward to the, the recent one with the Dodgers and also the Houston Astros because, if, I mean, excuse me, the, the Boston Red Sox. When you look at this situation and this type of game, seven hours and 20 minutes, 18 innings, and you're behind the plate. Ugh. It's, it's, it's unbelievable because that's two-plus games if you're looking at it with the average of what games are. Take us into that moment and what it went through your mind going through that game. Yes. So, uh, you know, I was very proud of that series because uh, being, being named the crew chief of the World Series is kind of the pinnacle of our careers. And so, um, you know, I was excited to go into that series. And, and as I take the plate for game three, we have the travel day going into L.A. Um, you know, the, the place is just it's packed. And you remember playing there. You'd look up in the first inning. It's like nobody's here. And then in about the fourth, everybody shows up. Uh, then in, in about the seventh, you look up again and the bleachers are empty because everybody leaves. I remember in about the seventh inning looking up in the bleachers in Los Angeles, nobody's left. <laughs> nobody's left. And I remember looking up in the 14th, nobody's left. The bleachers are still packed. Um, I'm like, wow. Um, but if you'd have told me on the way to the ballpark, hey, you're going to work uh, over seven hours tonight, I probably would have turned around and went back to the hotel. But um, you don't know that. That's the beauty of baseball, right? We're hoping for a, a two-hour and 15-minute game. Uh, and But, you know, we'll take a three-hour game in a World Series. If you can get it under four hours, you're, you're doing something special. So um, just getting ready to work and, and, and getting ready for the grind. And, you know, we talk about the pressure of a, a, a normal uh, Major League Baseball game. Now it gets magnified. The dog gets turned up in a World Series because everybody's hanging on every pitch. And so we get into the ninth inning, and now we're going extra innings. And so just – constantly talking to myself saying, stay in this game, concentrate, uh, you know, uh, just block out the fact that you're tired, that you're hungry. Um, and, uh, just concentrate again, just like the perfect game, make sure a ball is called a ball, make sure a strike is called a strike. Uh, just having this conversation with myself, um, praying for strength, <laughs> both physical and mental and, uh, locking in, and, um, you know, so in, in that situation, you just want the two teams to play out and, and have the game be decided by the players and not have it be a, a call by, by me or, or one of my crew that um, becomes a story. So, and it was, it was, it was two teams battling it out. Uh, Max Muncy hits the walk-off. Uh, you know, the crowd's going crazy. Nobody had left. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, um, walk off the field, you're on adrenaline. Um, and I think one thing that helped get me through that was I knew this was the last play job I was going to have that season. Um, you know, uh, uh, barring some uh, disaster where one of my crew couldn't work, I'd have to go back there again. But I knew uh, it was probably going to be my last game. The ones that really hurt are when you have that in, in June or July. And then you've got to get back there again three days later. <laughs> those are the one. Those are the suck it up days. But for that, it was like, okay, this is the last game, last play job of the season. Let's get through it. And then the innings just kind of go by. And you know, you've both been involved in games like that, where you don't really think about it till it's over. It's like, wow, that was a long game. But in the middle of it, you're just bearing down so much and concentrating. You're trying to get through it. 
Ted, there's uh, particulars in that game for our listeners. 561 pitches thrown in that game that you had to squat down and and watch and make decisions on. Also, six, I mean, 18 pitchers used by both sides, uh, 300 baseballs, all those little things that are amazing in that aspect. But you mentioned uh, the spreads earlier. What did you have after that game <laughs> if, if, if eating? Because you had to be dying when, it, when you got into that locker room. Yeah, we, we were starving, you know, and it, it was, uh, I remember there was chicken, there was fish. I mean, I'm sorry, steak and fish. And I usually will usually take one or the other, I try and eat healthy sometimes, and I'll take the fish. There I took both. <laughs> uh, I took anything, you know, and, and try not to eat the heavy carbs at night, you know, just like uh, you guys know the nutrition stuff, but I didn't care. It was out the window. Uh, I ate everything I could. I think I even had dessert, which uh, I try to stay away from those, which is, can be tough. But, uh, yeah, we, we attacked the whole spread that night, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot left. Hey, Ted, you know, with the four World Series and, and the All-Star Games and the playoffs and, and all the things you've seen and done, do you have any piece of memorabilia? I know you can't go autograph hounding, uh, but right. you're talking with presidents who are throwing out first pitches and all types of dignitaries and stuff. Yeah. you have anything that you've kept uh, uh, that's important to you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's cool. I'll, when uh, someone comes in the locker room, and it's been cool with, uh, with both President Bush's uh, and, you know, whenever – someone like that comes in the locker room, I ask him to sign a baseball. And uh, it's funny because um, it was, uh, I think Dirk Nowitzki came in during the World Series in Texas, asked him to sign a baseball. I said, oh, wow, I've never signed a baseball before. So those type of things. Um, people that sing the anthem sometimes will stop by the locker room. Uh, we were in the World Series in St. Louis, and, and Scotty McCreary had just uh, won American Idol, and I think – my wife and daughter were more excited to uh, to meet him, and, and they had him sign a baseball. So, you know, my baseball collections it, it's it's pretty full of uh, non baseball people signing baseballs. Uh, Roger Staubach I met in Chicago. Uh, you know, these type of things. Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, all these. Uh, sometimes I still get starstruck uh, when I when I meet an athlete that I looked up to and admired as a kid. Um, you know, some. Uh, met Garth Brooks with uh, Eddie Montague, his wife, Trisha Yearwood, those type of things. You're like, wow, this is, this is really cool. So um, yeah, I've got, I've got quite a collection of signed baseballs by non-baseball players. Teddy, you mentioned family and uh, we can't go without saying that uh, you, you have two boys and a girl. Also your wife was influential in your career and one of your sons would like to follow in your footsteps. Tell us a little bit of update on that. And how cool would that be if you could umpire a same game as your son? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's, he decided he wanted to go to umpire school at a young age. And I told him he had to go into, uh, go to college and get a degree or go in the military, his choice. So I'm proud of both of my boys. Uh, my older boy, Andrew, went in the Air Force. My younger son, Adam, went in the Army. And then uh, Andrew, after completing his four years in the Air Force, decided to go to umpire school. It's not something I ever um, encouraged or discouraged. You know, it's, I wanted him to. But he uh, also, as a kid hanging out in the big league clubhouses, I said, you do know you're in for about 10 years. That's not your reality. You won't, be, you won't be in a major league clubhouse. You'll be in a minor league clubhouse. And he says, I know, Dad. So he's, he's grinding it out. Uh, he finished last year in the Texas League, and he was on the cusp of getting promoted to uh, AAA. It, hopefully he, we can get back out there and get him to work. But 
uh, two years ago, we actually got to work a major league spring training game together. And then another one this past year, we got to work together and that was really cool. But it's interesting because, uh, you know, Mike, you asked earlier about help being a crew chief and helping out the younger guys. You know, for me, part of helping a younger guy is watching him go through situations, arguments, and then when the game's over, we'll, we'll talk about it and break it down. Well, I was standing out on the bases when my son was working the plate, and anybody that said something to him or questioned him, I was getting angry. So uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea if we work together in the big leagues because I might charge a dugout, and <laughs> you know, which is opposite of my personality. So they – um, you know, it's funny how people are really reasonable until it comes to their children, right? So, uh, you know, I have no problem watching a AAA guy um, that I'm working with uh, maybe get yelled at, get tested, and then handle it. But I don't think I'll, I'll be able to do that. Uh, I'll probably have to watch his games on TV instead of uh, going and sitting in the stands. <laughs> It'd sure be cool if it could happen. I'll tell you this, you know, it took a little uh, time to research it. And while there have been fathers and sons who've umpired in the big leagues, uh, we couldn't find any father and sons who've done so at the very same time. One, you know, the father will retire and then the son might come up. Uh, but for you, what an opportunity that might be. Best of luck to Andrew, all your children, your wife, of course, and, and to you, Ted, for, uh, for all you've done uh, from a fan's perspective. Thanks for your integrity uh, and discipline in the game and, and for spending some time sharing your stories today. Oh, wow. You know, it's, it, this was fun. Um, thank you for having me on. And, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I think when my career is over, I'll reflect more on on some of these things, but I think it's important to take time even now as I'm still working to reflect on some of the cool things that have happened and, and be thankful for that. And, and this is showing us, uh, you know, sitting at home rather than being on the field when we should, how lucky it shows me how lucky I am to have this job and, and to be a part of major league baseball. Um, and, uh, to be out on the field every day, it is a tough job. It is grueling, but, um, you know, it, uh, an old time umpire said a long time ago, it's the best seat in the house, but you have to stand. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what, Teddy, I had that seat too, right over the railing most of my career, but I appreciate your professionalism and also your longevity, longevity in the game. And uh, thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Mark. And like I said earlier, you were, uh, you know, a, a player that uh, treated umpires with respect and we all respected you. And so, uh, and now we're glad you're in the booth because we feel like we have an ally. So, yeah. uh, so thank you. And Mike, do. I, don't, I don't know if we ever crossed paths, maybe in the minor league somewhere, but, uh, I'm too old for you, Ted. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look it. <laughs> That's a lot of makeup, my friend. <laughs> Years of makeup for it, but it, it was awesome to hear your story, buddy. We really do appreciate it. And I know there are probably a million things, um, that we could have gotten to. And unfortunately we didn't want to, take too much more of your time your career man is, is just extraordinary um but thanks buddy really appreciate you sharing all this with us yeah maybe i'll come back and tell more stories awesome we'd, we'd love to have you we would love we'd that teddy thank you so much thanks so much for checking out major league beginnings if you had as much fun as we did we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from it could be apple Podcasts, google play spotify wherever you like we're just glad to have you aboard and we'll see you next time Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.